Shelley Schlender. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, March 19th, 2019. Coming up, we'll hear from Richard Rangham, a Harvard primatologist, about how he evolved to be both peaceful and violent. He'll discuss his new book, The Goodness Paradox, The Strange Relationship Between Virtue and Violence in Primary Evolution. Well, it is, of course, a startling thought that one of the most characteristic features of our particular species, Homo sapiens, uh, would be capital punishment. But you have to think yourself into a very different world from that that we know nowadays. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Increasing evidence warns that the modern class of pesticides known as neonicotinoids is hurting plenty of small animals such as honeybees and songbirds, as well as rabbits and frogs. And if those harms aren't bad enough, now there's a larger animal on the list. It's Montana's white-tailed deer. Over the past 10 years, the white-tailed deer in Montana have exhibited increasing symptoms of illnesses that match the symptoms that are known to come from contact with an endocrine-disrupting pesticide, such as imidacloprid. Imidacloprid is a neonicotinoid and an endocrine-disrupting chemical. So to figure out this pesticide may be causing some of the damage to white-tailed deer, scientists at the South Dakota State University Wildlife and Fisheries gave a group of captive wild-tailed mothers and their fawns water laced with pesticide, imidacloprid. Meanwhile, they gave a control group of deers and their babies water that was pesticide-free. The scientists measure the water's the deer's water consumption, thyroid hormone function, behavioral responses, and skull and jawbone measurements. Additionally, they measured levels of the pesticide in the deer's liver, spleen, genitals, and brain. Results indicated that, for one, even deer free of the pesticide dosed water had significant levels of the pesticide in their body organs. So this indicates that many deer get these pesticides simply by living their lives in the modern world. That deer got extra imidacloprid in their water fared even worse. They generally had increased levels of the pesticide in their spleen, and their fawns tended not to live as long, as those deer and their fawns tended to be more sluggish. The research was published recently in the journal Nature Scientific Reports. And on a lighter note, if you've ever believed that you have a sixth sense for how to find your way through an area without a map, the answer is maybe yes, you do, and maybe you don't. But there's more evidence about this maybe yes. Scientists at Caltech and the University of Tokyo have concluded that the human brain can unconsciously respond to changes in Earth's magnetic fields. To dead reckon themselves toward making this claim, the team combined experts from geoscientists and neurobiologists. They used electroencephalography, or EEGs, to record human adult brain activity during magnetic field manipulations. So carefully controlled experiments in which they changed the level of magnetic field revealed a decrease in alpha-band brain activity, an established response to sensory input in some participants. The researchers replicated this effect in participants who responded strongly. And they confirmed that these responses were tuned to the magnetic field of the northern hemisphere, where the study was conducted. As for how plausible this is, well, it depends on where you look for analogies. 
Studies of human ability to navigate by magnets have been dormant for many decades, but research has been done on many animals, such as migratory birds, homing pigeons, and sea turtles. As for we humans, there's not as much hard data about how they tune in to Earth's magnetism. This new study is a start, though, so if you're curious about whether you can tune into the Earth's magnetic fields for directions yourself, we suggest that you keep Google Maps somewhere nearby in case you get lost. But if you want to try it, may the force, that is the magnetic force, be with you. The research was reported yesterday in the journal eNeuro. And on the local science and environment calendar this week, tomorrow night, March 20th at 7 o'clock, there'll be a panel on environmental journalism, the challenges it faces, and new business models that are emerging. The Center for Environmental Journalism at CU Boulder will host the panel discussion. It'll feature the editor of Manga Bay, that's a global online journalism startup, as well as writers for Manga Bay. And Michael Kodis, co-director of the center, will moderate the panel. The event will be held at the auditorium at the Seek Building on the East Campus at 4001 Discovery Drive. You're listening to KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. So one of the most vexing contradictions of humanity is this. We humans are capable of violence as well as peacefulness. Our guest today has been exploring this contradiction and its evolutionary and historical roots for many years. He's been doing this largely by studying two of our four ape ancestors, bonobos, which are known to be relatively peaceful, and chimpanzees, which are more aggressive. Richard Rangham is a primatologist at Harvard University. His new book, which was just published, is called The Goodness Paradox, The Strange Relationship Between Virtue and Violence in Human Evolution. In this sweeping book, Dr. Rangham explores what happens during human evolution to account for this paradox. He argues that something may argues something that may seem counterintuitive and even shocking. And that's the invention of our ancestors, some 250,000 years ago, of socially sanctioned capital punishment, namely the killing of the most aggressive males. Our species became more domesticated and cooperative, leading to the rise of civilization itself. Dr. Rangham grapples with questions of morality and culture that are as relevant, relevant yesterday as they are today. My How on Earth colleague Chip Granditz and I recently interviewed Dr. Rangham. We played clips of the interview on last week's Pledge Drive show, and now we share the full interview. A big thanks to those listeners who pledged then. Some of you donated at least $60 and received a copy of Dr. Rangham's book. Thanks so much, and thanks to publisher Pantheon for donating the books. Uh, We're going to start right away with uh, our opening question with Dr. Rangham. You look quite closely in this book and, and previously at two of the four ape species, not just the chimps that are the more aggressive ones, but do you, am I pronouncing this right, the bonobos? Why and how is it that we're much more like the bonobos? That's right. Uh, so what is so remarkable is that you have these two species, chimpanzees and bonobos, that are equally closely related to us, and they look very much like each other, so it, it takes an expert to tell them apart, pretty much. And yet the bonobo behaves very differently from chimpanzees, and one of the ways in which it is different is that it is much less aggressive. They still are much more aggressive than humans in terms of just tossing up the frequency with which they get into some kind of uh, spat, 
But nevertheless, there is a huge difference in the overall magnitude and importance of day-to-day aggression. Bonobos are much more peaceful than chimps. And what I believe is that the differences have emerged in ways that are very instructive for thinking about the evolution of reduced aggressiveness in humans, too. Fascinating. So before we get more into the apes, you've got this dichotomy here, basically. Call it bonobo chimp, or in your book you talk about this, that we've inherited these two opposite worldviews. One is that of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the 18th century French philosopher, who basically claimed that humanity is instinctively peaceful. Nice. And on the other is that of Thomas Hobbes, the English philosopher of the 16th, 17th century, who claimed that humans are naturally wicked and need, to be, and need society to tame their bad instincts. But you really claim that it's not one versus the other, and that's actually a false debate, right? And how so? Yes, no, that's very well put. I mean, I think that what has happened is that the reason that it has been so difficult to resolve this debate between Rousseau and Hobbes is that in, in different ways, each of them has performed a correct view. That is to say that uh, innately, as Rousseau <coughs> is said to have claimed, uh, we do have a tremendous tendency for, um, call it peaceableness, uh, for a very low rate of aggression in ordinary day-to-day interactions. And yet it is also true, as Hobbes claimed, that we have a natural tendency to be selfishly concerned in ways that will lead us to readily use aggression or violence uh, on our own behalf. And so the big question is, how do we reconcile these two? And I think we now have a very clear answer. And the answer is that uh, whereas people have always traditionally thought that aggression comes in just one style and you're either low or high on the scale of aggression, actually there are two biologically distinct types of aggression. And we are low on one type, which is the reactive aggression, and we are high on the scale of the other type, which is proactive aggression. Yeah, flesh that out a, a little bit. So the, the less reactive meaning the hot-headed, I'm just going to punch you and I'm responding to a threat versus the more yes. cold, premeditated, proactive. Exactly. Exactly. So <clears throat> reactive aggression is, is uh, always uh, associated with a strong emotional arousal. Uh, you kind of lash out at uh, whatever is alarming or threatening you. And by the way, you can very often get hurt uh, while you're involved in that kind of fight. Whereas proactive aggression is the, the planned, cool-headed type where you expect not to get hurt because you expect to make a plan that will make others suffer but not yourself. You allude to um, a human capacity for both saintly kindness and heartless cruelty. I want to talk about how that capacity exists within one individual. A Buddhist uh, might respond by asserting that the paradox is created by insisting on a belief in a, in a single integrated ego, you know, that acts on a consistent set of beliefs. And a Buddhist would say, although it's scary to do so, in the end it would cause less confusion and, and therefore less misery to just let go of the idea that humans really act on a single integrated set of beliefs. Uh, how, how do such spiritual beliefs compare to the ideas that you present in The Goodness Paradox? 
Well, the notion that, uh, on the one hand, um, we can be extraordinarily uh, calm and tolerant and docile, and on the other hand, the same individual has the capacity for uh, exerting uh, heartless cruelty uh, or deliberate sadism, uh, just a, a thoroughly vicious uh, attempt to uh, kill others uh, at, uh, with no concern for their feelings. Uh, the notion that an individual can carry these two kinds of approach to aggression uh, in themselves is entirely compatible with the notion that aggression comes in these two styles. So one aspect of the brain is concerned with reactive aggression and the other with proactive aggression, and they can act remarkably independently. I want to start with a quote from a neuroscientist and occasional orangutan cohabitor, Robert Sapolsky. He said, at the end of the day, there is no social interaction of humans that does not bear the imprint of our being a species of animal, of primate, and of ape. Although we pointed out some distinctions, would you accept that statement at face value? Well, it is certainly the case that uh, the great majority of our social behavior is influenced by emotions that have evolved from our primate past. And uh, in relationship to the question of aggression, uh, we have these two styles of aggression where the reactive aggression has evolved from uh, a past ancestor that was almost certainly uh, much more aggressive than we are. The proactive aggression has evolved from an ancestor that was probably uh, rather equivalently aggressive uh, to us in the sense that, like chimpanzees, they would have used their proactive aggression to deliberately kill members of neighboring groups. And what is so striking is that humans and chimpanzees uh, roughly uh, have a death rate from intergroup aggression that is about the same where uh, something uh, around the order of uh, 1% of individuals in each generation uh, will be killed uh, by uh, members of their own species in intergroup attacks. Fascinating. So it's about, about the same. And on that topic of basically killing and execution, I want to bring us to modern society and how we've evolved. I thought it was fascinating and potentially really controversial where you talk in your book where you have this claim that execution is natural from an evolutionary standpoint, namely that executions were performed on aggressive males, in fact, as a form of social control that produced a morally superior, more peaceful society. And yet you also say that just because it might be natural to execute people, humans, apes, doesn't mean it's moral or even effective. So unpack the origins, the evolutionary benefit of execution and what it means for us now. Well, it is, of course, a startling thought that uh, one of the most characteristic features of our particular species, Homo sapiens, uh, would be capital punishment. But you have to think yourself into a very different world from that that we know in our days. And that world is one in which people are living in relatively small groups that are part of a larger society, but the groups are something like uh, between 25 and 40 people on average. And within those groups, uh, you have sometimes some individuals who are just unbearably antisocial, who are willing to uh, go out and uh, use their physical strength 
to dominate others in the group to the point where they can steal anything. They can steal meat, they can steal women, they can punch people in the face. And then the question is, what do you do with these people? And there is no police. There are no prisons. There is no one you can uh, summon to help you. And you have to take care of it yourself. And, of course, there are all sorts of uh, social mechanisms to try and do it in ways that are not violent. Uh, they're teased, uh, they're ostracized, uh, they're cajoled, they're shouted at, people sing in their face. But sometimes all of those things fail. And then what do you do if someone is just absolutely determined to make everyone else's life miserable, even to the point, maybe, of getting into fights and killing others? And the answer is there is only one solution, and that is uh, they are killed. And the reason that one can be confident that this occurs is because it has been seen in every continent in the world among hunters and gatherers. This seems to be just something that is absolutely fundamental about humans, and it explains a remarkable observation about humans, which is that in those groups you don't have chiefs, you don't have alpha males, uh, you have instead a, a group of men, uh, the husbands, as it were, uh, who all share authority, and nobody rises above the others. And what happens if they try and rise above the others? Well, that's when you get these social mechanisms coming into play to cut them down. Okay, so that's sort of for anarchy. That's for these small communities. You are not, I suspect, and I believe you say in the book, condoning capital punishment now. Why? That's right. I mean, just like uh, so much of our past, uh, we are in a, a very fortunate world nowadays where we can abandon it. And uh, so just as uh, there was all sorts of horrid sexual coercion and um, all sorts of uh, ways in which people were treating each other very roughly in some ways, uh, capital punishment was something that uh, is part of our past. It was very different then. It was conducted by people who knew each other extremely well, uh, by people who were often related to each other, uh, and it was done because there was no alternative. But now, of course, we have alternatives, much more humane. You know, putting people into prison, obviously still there are sometimes people who are put into prison for reasons that <coughs> are actually unjustified, but nevertheless, it's a whole lot better than killing them. Yeah. I'd like to, to touch back on how this idea of uh, adaptation and evolutionary advantage and natural selection uh, applies to the human species. Well, we've all heard the old adage, uh, live by the sword, die by the sword. And although maybe by the time you've died by the sword, you've, you've done quite well for yourself and had a, a dozen children, so, so maybe that's okay. So how would a, a scholar of evolutionary biology approach the question of, does living by the sword offer an evolutionary advantage? Well, uh, to take that question and put it into the context of this capital punishment, you know, one kind of possibility one might argue is that uh, a young man who is able to uh, uh, steal the wives of other men and, um, and have some children uh, and otherwise dominate the camp before eventually, <clears throat> when by the time he's, say, 30, uh, he is finally uh, killed, uh, you might say, well, all right, he's had some children, he's done pretty well. But the problem is that in the uh, world of uh, social constraints and um, uh, intense uh, competition that you have in, in these small-scale societies, 
what would typically happen is that a man who had um, had been so unpleasant to others, he would risk having all of his children killed after he uh, was killed. So you know, it's not just a question of uh, whether or not a man uh, is able to get through a period of life and have some kids. You've also got to think about what happens to them. And even in the less drastic case where it's not literally the case that his children would be killed, nevertheless, uh, we know that uh, children whose father has died have a less successful upbringing than those uh, whose fathers are alive. In other words, they're more likely to die themselves just from the absence of the father. So uh, it's not as simple as uh, someone who uh, is just able to uh, have a, a period in their lives of, of flourishing by aggression and then uh, dying young, uh, hoping that uh, they will have done well evolutionarily. The chances are they will not have done well. I want to approach how your ideas might be put in place to address some of the most vexing issues that face modern humanity. I think the the capacity for uh, prolonged cruelty and the necessity for compassion and forgiveness is is nowhere more evident than after a brutal dictatorial regime has been overthrown. So let's say you were given an opportunity to advise on a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, what insights would you offer uh, to prevent uh, the common ongoing cycle where simply the stage is set for the next dictator to take power with the promise of revenge? How do you break that cycle? Well, that's a very tough question, of course, but um, I think the main point that I would say is that uh, we should be very wary of the perspective that says that once you got rid of evil people then or evil ideologies, uh, then everything is going to be sweetness and light. You know, it's very tempting to draw attention to humans' good side, the Rousseauian perspective, and say if only we could uh, just uh, move into a world in which we forget about patriarchy and we forget about uh, inequality, uh, and everyone is uh, in the communist ideal of being equal, then uh, everything will be all right. The great error with that is that we do clearly have in our own evolutionary emotions a tendency to use proactive violence if we have the opportunity to do it safely from our point of view. Lord Acton said, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And in the context that you're thinking about, uh, in the um, aftermath of uh, some kind of war or some kind of rebellion or some kind of getting rid of uh, some uh, dictators or absolute power themselves, then it's easy to think, okay, we don't really need institutions to control us now that everything is going to be all right. But we do. We're always going to need those institutions to control the... Uh, tendencies of the powerful to abuse their power. That's the general message I would want to get. And any final thoughts for our listeners here in Colorado and, of course, far beyond worldwide? Well, the the final thought I would say is this, that uh, it's slightly startling to think that we have these capacities uh, for proactive aggression in which uh, we uh, will very readily, under some circumstances, 
be astonishingly unpleasant to members of our own species. But the great thing is that the way in which animals, including humans, have evolved to use proactive aggression is that provided that the attacker risks getting hurt themselves, then there is a tremendous internal constraint on using it. And that is why we can have societies that are peaceful for uh, decades or sometimes longer at a time, where you have social institutions that arrange to make sure that people cannot get away with abusing their power. So as long as we keep in mind that there is always a danger that people might use their power and therefore we need to set up systems to stop them doing it, then we can envisage a future of peace. And do you envisage a future in which our descendants will be any more or less demonic or angelic, or will we just kind of con- continue? Well, you know, Stephen Pinker has uh, written this uh, wonderful book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, in which he documents the decline of violence over time. And it seems to me that uh, what that is doing is emphasizing exactly the point I'm making, that uh, social institutions can be arranged to, to reduce the uh, use of, um, of uh, the kind of aggression we're talking about. The great problem, of course, is that at the same time as we have been more successful in reducing the frequency of aggression, uh, we also have been developing weapons that are more and more alarming so that you only have to uh, have a small nuclear war and it's going to ruin your day. <laughs> yeah. So the, uh, we're going in the right direction, but we still have great problems. That was Dr. Richard Rangham, author of the new book, which, of course, is as timely today as ever. It's called The Goodness Paradox, The Strange Relationship Between Virtue and Violence and Human Evolution. Thanks again to many of you who called and pledged last week during the pledge drive and got a copy of the book. We still have two copies, so if you go online to kgnu.org and pledge your support, particularly for at least $60, or you can become a sustaining member, then you will get a copy and indicate online that you want a copy of The Goodness Paradox We also have many other great science books for you if you want those. And thanks again to our generous members, without whom this community-powered radio KGNU would not exist, nor this science show. Thank you. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced and engineered by Shelley Schlender. Additional contributions from Chip Granditz. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from African Groove. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes. And of course, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender. And I'm Susan Moran. Mm-hmm.